If you have your Bibles, keep them open to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20, and we'll be in chapters 20 and 21 this morning. Uh, Studying through the book of Joshua, we've seen the Israelites move into the land as they've crossed the River Jordan. They have taken the land uh, through battles, through the conquest. And most recently, we've been through a, a section of the book where we've watched Joshua by the uh, by the hand of the Lord, give the land as an inheritance to the different tribes, the different allotments. And we've watched how they've been divided and been given up. This morning will be our last sermon, last two chapters where it's dealing with land allotments. And then we'll move into a final chapter, our final section of the book, uh, where we'll see uh, the, the book all tied together and some concluding remarks and movements in the chapter. But this is our last week to deal with land allotment and the inheritance that God has given to the people of Israel and what we can learn from that and how we're to apply spiritual principles uh, from Israel's history to our lives as believers today. And so this morning, I've, I've placed uh, some notes in your, in your bulletin. Uh, that's to help you out because there's several uh, points and sub-points, and I don't want you to get lost and feel like, ah, I'm, I'm bogged down, I don't know where we're at. And so I've just given you those from the start so you can uh, lean in and just hear what the Word of the Lord would have for us this morning and not be so concerned with making sure you have every point and subpoint. Uh, and so this morning, I'm showing uh, in the text uh, what, I, what I believe the Lord would, would have for us this morning are, are three pictures of who God is, in, in the, even just in the, the, the division of land and, and cities uh, to a couple different groups, uh, who God is, some, some characteristics or the nature, or the attributes of who God is, and then who we are in response to that as his people uh, how then we should respond and live and, and, and image those attributes to the world today. And so uh, the first one you see there, that we serve a God of justice. We serve a God of justice. And this is all of chapter 20. It's a short chapter, verses 1 through 9, only nine verses long. And so we'll read the entire chapter and see what we hear there about God and his character, specifically his uh, justice, the justice of God. <clears throat> so read with me, starting in verse 1. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at, that, at the time." Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland and the tribe of, uh, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tar, uh, tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood, 
till he stood before the congregation. Now, believe it or not, I, I believe there are five truths here about God in these nine verses that we see concerning his justice. Uh, and I'm going to walk through all five, and at some point in, that, in, that, in those five, you may feel like, man, where's the application for us in this? Uh, but bear with me, once we observe God's justice, I'm going to circle back and make a couple big points of application for us. So hang on to your seats, because we're going to go pretty quickly here with these five. The first one, we see the justness of God's justice. The justness of God's justice. I might be making up a word there, but I think it gets to the point. Um, God takes initiative here and he instructs Joshua to follow through with some things that he'd already commanded Moses to do. This was God's plan uh, way back in Numbers chapter 35 and Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, We see the establishment in those chapters in Numbers and Deuteronomy, the establishment of cities of refuge. And, uh, and you may wonder, well, what, what are those and why were they important? Our text this morning gives us a summary of that and why they were important. But these cities were, they, they served as temporary places of asylum so that those who were guilty of unintentional manslaughter could go there. You see it in verse 3, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent, that's, that's the person that this, is, that this is applicable for. Deuteronomy chapter 19 gives us a, a very practical example. It almost gives us a... Here's a scenario that this would apply to. So Deuteronomy 19, you don't have to turn there, but you may even remember from our study through Deuteronomy. uh, Two men go out into the forest, right, to chop some wood. And one man's axe falls apart because he bought it at Harbor Freight. And the axe head flies off and it strikes the other man and it kills him. And the man who made the poor choice in tools, though he, he killed someone, it led to someone's death, it was not intentional it wasn't, it wasn't on purpose. He had no uh, malicious intent in his heart, and so he doesn't deserve to die. Um, he, he, was, he, was, he was not deliberately killing this man, and so he didn't intentionally cause the death of his friend. They're going out to chop wood, and so uh, he, he doesn't deserve to die. God's law, what we see in Deuteronomy and even in Joshua here, is that God's law takes note of the motives, the, the intent of one's heart in such cases. A man without a murderer's heart should not suffer a murderer's punishment. And we see the justness of God's justice in this passage. He wants the right thing to be done, the right consequences for action to be carried out. And he's considering, he's weighing the heart, the intent in, in that. Second thing we see about God's justice here is the, the accessibility of God's justice. The accessibility of God's justice. The danger in this whole situation, the reason cities of refuge were given, is because in this unfortunate scenario, the redeemer of blood, that's, that's a person mentioned in, in verse 3 and in verse 5, That person is the nearest relative of the the slain person, usually a a man next of kin that would be charged with maintaining the family rights, right? And so the the heart uh, of the issue that's going on here in in Joshua 20 is that in in the heat of that moment when someone's been killed, the redeemer of blood, that closest of kin, could kill the manslayer uh, before finding out the facts, before the, the, the truth of the case could be known and dealt with properly. And so in that case, um, vindictive vengeance, right, uh, could take place rather than proper retribution. The, 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 you could add, in a situation that's already a tragic situation of someone passing away, you could add on top of that injustice if blood is, is carried out for something that was accidental. And so, uh, and so these cities of refuge protected the manslayer um, that, 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 uh, and on top of protecting the manslayer, the one that killed his friend accidentally, this city of refuge protected the one who would be settling the shedding of blood, right? It protected him from committing a crime or, 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 uh, or killing another person in justice 
And then only finding out later that, that he did it wrongly and he didn't, he didn't act as in the way he should by having the details in front of him. And so for that reason, it was crucial that God's justice be accessible. That it be that, be that everybody in Israel could get to a place like this, a refuge city like this. And so for that reason, if you see the, the names of the cities that we just listed out uh, in, the, in the end of that chapter, in chapter 20... There are six cities of refuge all across the promised land. And so if, the, if you think about the Jordan sort of dividing, you've got tribes on the, on the west and the east side of the land. There were tribes in the north, in the central, and in the south, east of the Jordan and west of the Jordan. So there were, there were places that they could get to no matter where they lived in the land. And actually, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, uh, Deuteronomy even gets more specific and says that roads should be prepared. You should prepare a road so that people can easily access these cities. You need to be able to get to them. Why? Well, the very number of cities and the location of these refuge cities shows us that God wanted to make his justice readily available to everyone. Um, his justice was meant to be clearly practicable and practicable, practical and reachable. He wanted people to get to justice and find justice in these cities. Third thing we see about God's justice here is the intrinsic values of God's justice. The, the values of God's justice. The provision of these cities of refuge show us, show us what God cares about. Show us, it shows us today even God's values, the things that he would put value upon. The chapter overflows with the value of human life, the sanctity of human life. In this case, the value of the manslayer's life and the dead person's life, the person whose life was taken accidentally. Now, the clearest concern for us here in the text is that this, this, these cities of refuge, they place a value upon the life of the accidental manslayers, right? The one, who, the one who killed someone accidentally. That's clear here. His life is valuable. You see that in the fact that even after this accident, God provides a place of refuge for him so that he can go there and have a fair hearing and that, that he wouldn't be killed unnecessarily. So that's clear. That's easy in the text. The manslayer's life is protected. It's valuable. Even after something like this, even after a horrible, tragic accident, his life has value. But what about the man who was taken out by the axe head? What about, what about the man that, 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 uh, that was killed here? What about the value of his life? What about the sanctity of his life? How is, how is it shown any value by having these refuge cities? Well, to get that, you need to think about what this refuge city was. Think about this. This refuge city was not just a place of, of safety for the manslayer, though it was that. It was also a place of exile. This man was told to go to this city, and it, it, he enjoyed protection there from the avenger of blood, but he also, also suffers a penalty there. He, he, he's tried by the elders of the congregation, and if he's found guilty of murder, he dies. Even, even in the case where it's decided in his favor, and, and the elders of the city decide, yes, this was truly an accident, Verse 6 shows us that he can't immediately go home. Uh, he can't return to his home. He can't return to his normal life, his, his town. He must stay in the city of refuge until the death of the current high priest. Nor can he leave the boundaries of this city. If you go back to Numbers chapter 35, it says that even if he leaves the boundaries of this city of refuge, he's fair game. He's fair game for the slain man's relatives, the avenger of blood, to come in and kill. And so this city is simultaneously a refuge and a prison. Why? Because the cost of human life, the cost of destroying life created in God's image. 
Even when life is taken unintentionally, as this is the case, even when it's accidental, there are consequences and that wrong must be carried out. It must be dealt with. Listen, life, and this is what we learn here, that life made in God's image has always been and will always remain exceedingly sacred. Life is sacred. God, God prioritizes it. He wants us to see that in, in all of Scripture. And so I know I told you I was going to wait to the end to make a couple points of application, but I, I must say this here. As followers of God, we must be advocates of life from conception to final breath. We must. And it should break our hearts when, when, and, and move us, not just break our hearts, certainly it breaks our hearts. I, I hear that and I, I see that from, from our congregation, from Christians all over the place. But it should break our hearts and move us to action when we see laws and bills passed that only increase the amount of abortions that take place in our nation every day. It should break our hearts and move us to action. It should equally break our hearts when we hear that the foster care system in North Carolina is overflowing with children that need adoption and not enough families willing to take them in. That should break our hearts and move us to action. Why? Because we care about life because God cares about life. He values it. So so ask ourselves this morning, do we share God's heart for all of those that are created in his image? Or just when it's convenient? Just when it's our preaching point? Number four, we see the satisfaction of God's justice. The satisfaction of God's justice. The unintentional taking of a human life here was so serious that there could be no release from this city of refuge. This person could not be released, even in an accidental killing, could not be released from this city of refuge except by the death of the high priest. You see that in verse 6. So Joshua 20 is, 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 is not just a, a summary, um, or is, 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 a, is more, Joshua 20 is more of a, a summary of what's taking place in Numbers 35. But more than that, the Joshua 20 shows us what happens when they get to the land and begin to do this. And, uh, and, and so Numbers is telling them what they should do when they get there. Joshua's showing us that they followed through with it. But if you go back to Numbers 35, you get more details. This is sort of just the, the Sparks Notes version in Joshua 20 showing us that they did what they were told to do in Numbers. But if you go to Numbers 35, this is what you see, that apparently in the case where, where some criminals, criminals um, would commit a crime that was um, to, be, to be carried out with the death penalty, the death penalty would just be exercised, in some cases a ransom could be paid. You could, you could substitute money for your life. You could give a certain amount and, and be set free, but not... When it was murder, you see that in Numbers 35, verse 31. Numbers 35, verse 31. When there was murder, uh, you could not pay that ransom. Why? Because according to Numbers, blood pollutes the land. There was a pollution that happened in the land when blood was shed. And the only way that that blood pollution could be uh, accounted for, could be dealt with, was when the blood shedder, the murderer, was, was killed. Um, that, that's how atonement was made for the land, when the, the murderer was executed. The only acceptable payment for, the, for that murder, for the blood, was the murderer's own life. And so listen closely here, church family. Only a murderer's life could purge the land of the pollution that that blood uh, being spilled would cause, the defilement in the land. That was the only satisfaction of justice in the case of a murderer. That's important because here we have something very similar. It's very similar in the case of an unintentional killing. So think about the principle. If, that, if the principle of blood pollution and the shedding of innocent blood is the case, if that's, if that's being held up as a principle for the Old Testament in the Old Testament for the uh, Israelites, then even unintentional killing means that the land is still polluted with blood. There's still a bloodshed. There's an, there's an innocent blood being spilled here. 
And so uh, whether it was by murder or by accidental killing, you still have a polluted land. So then in Numbers 35, Numbers 35, verse 32, you have this. It says this, you are not to accept a ransom payment for one who has fled to a city of refuge. So accidental killing, you're not to accept a ransom payment, allowing him to go back and live in the land before the high priest has died. So, so you can't accept a, a payment, you can't accept a ransom for even accidental shedding of blood. You certainly can't for murder. But there's something going on here with the high priest. When he dies, he can go back to his home. He can go back to his own land and back to his house and live his normal life. And one commentary says this, Both incur guilt and pollute the land. Both require atonement. Murder by the execution of the murderer and manslaughter through the natural death of the high priest. Are you hearing that? That the high priest's death was the only ransom that could be paid for manslaughter. And I hope that gets your wheels turning as a New Testament Christian that that his death, the high priest's death, in some way atones for bloodshed and satisfies the claims of justice that God had given them. And I hope your heart is starting to to feel glimpses of Calvary as a Christian when you hear that the high priest's death can release the offender from banishment and bring him home again. Like our hearts should be rejoicing and even the glimpses and the shadows of the gospel that we have here in, in Joshua chapter 20. Friends, it's not by mistake or coincidence that the writer of Hebrews calls Jesus our great high priest. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says. Therefore he, that's Jesus, he, had made, uh, he had made to be, uh, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins uh, of the people. Friends, listen to the claim of the gospel. The great high priest, Jesus, our great high priest, not from natural causes. He he died a criminal's death. He was tortured and beaten and nailed to a cross of wood to suffer your exile. He was suffering your banishment, your prison. Friends, he was killed so that you could come home. Friends, that's the gospel. He suffered mockery and shame so that we can stand guilt-free and blameless before the Father. We were murderers. We were the manslayers. We were the ones that had sinned and rebelled in every way. And yet our great high priest has borne our sins. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. Friends, even even in the book of Joshua, chapter 20, you want to talk about application? Start here, friend. Have you given your life to this great high priest, this one who has has saved you from your sins, who has cleansed you and atoned for the defilement in your heart, not in the land, but in your heart because of our rebellion? He promises that if you will but call upon him and give your life to him, you'll be saved. Oh, friends, that's incredible news. That even in, even in the Old Testament, in the, in, the, in the case of a refuge city, we see glimpses of our Savior who would go into exile on our behalf. Number five. You see the inclusiveness of God's justice. The inclusiveness of God's justice. Note how the circle of God's justice here includes the sojourner as well as native Israelites. Look at verse 9. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there. Now verse 9 seems to be just a summary note at the end of this chapter, it's just sort of, sort of summarizing all that we've heard. Yet, it's more than just a summary note for this chapter. It's really a summary note of God's character. 
You see this, that God includes the sojourner, the stranger, the alien, the immigrant within the justice that he's laid out for Israel because he's included the immigrant, the stranger, the the sojourner within his love that he's given to Israel. Um, Deuteronomy 20, verse 18 shows us this before we even get into the land, that God has made claims like this. Deuteronomy uh, uh, 10, verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Friends, there's a wideness in God's mercy that even in the book of Joshua, even in the Old Testament, with all of the land allotments and battles and foreign peoples and idolaters and pagans and the geography that we meet, we meet a God who will, according to Ephesians chapter 2, bring near all of those who were far off by the blood of the Messiah. That even there, even though he had lavished his love on Israel, he's making a way for the nations. The stranger, the sojourner, the alien, the immigrant... The one who would just find themselves in Israel's company. And so there's, friend, there's incredible application here. As we think about sojourners and strangers and aliens, this is, this is not about whether we should or shouldn't build Trump's wall. There's no political argument here. That's not what I'm addressing this morning. And so don't hear that as, as what I'm coming at. But the principle from Scripture is clear. The principle from Scripture that we see in God's heart is clear for us. And shame on us. If sojourners and aliens and immigrants in our community, we see them and our first thought is, I wish you'd just go back to where you came from. Friend, God's circle of justice is far greater than that. Or if our first thought, our knee-jerk reaction is, man, things were really better before they were here. Friends, God's circle of justice is, is bigger than that. We see the heart of God in his word that he cares for all people. He cares for all nations. And so regardless of of our our view on immigration, do you have the heart of God towards someone that may not carry the same citizenship citizenship status that you do? When you see someone of a different ethnicity or or down in the the supermarket or in the stores, do, do you have a heart for them? Or is your first thought, man, I wonder where they come from, taking up our place here, taking up jobs, taking up opportunity? Do we have the heart of God towards the people that God has a heart for? Uh, Adam and Melissa have shared with us about their work uh, with refugees through uh, World Relief. And I'm certain they would be able to connect to you if you felt led to work in, in this ministry with them. It's not about how refugees got here. That's not even the, that says nothing about that in the text of, of Joshua. But it's, it's not about whether they should be allowed to stay here or whether they should continue to come. The point is they are here, full families, mamas, daddies, kids, and grandparents, and will we have the love of, of Christ toward them? Will we show the love of Christ toward them? Or will our political preferences so confuse our convictions that we look the other way? As the people of God, we're all immigrants. As God's people, as his children, as followers of Christ, we are the immigrants. We're just passing through this strange land. This is not our home. We're just journeying. We're just pilgriming through this country. And God forbid that we let our love for this temporal home shadow our love for Jesus and our desire to see all peoples invited into our forever home, right? Like that we would be so fixed on this temporal place that we're living that we don't see eternity and the, and the people that we may, may be missing along the way. So before we, we, before we run to, to social media and share a, a video or a meme or a post or type in all caps some angry thing about our culture and our world in the day and age we live in, ask yourself, do my actions at this moment look like God's heart for all people, for all nations, or does it look more like I have a heart for this temporal home that will not last forever? Where are our allegiances? That was point number one. Point number two. We see as we move into chapter 21, we see 
that we serve a God of generosity and mercy. He's a God of justice, but he's also a God of generosity and mercy. And we see this in chapter 21. And so uh, this designation, as we move into 21, we see a designation of cities for the Levitical priests, the Levites. Um, And so remind you what that means. As we've been studying the book of Joshua, we've seen this a couple times, um, that the Levites did not receive a land inheritance like the other tribes. They didn't have an allotment like the other tribes. You see in chapter 13, verse 14 and verse 33, uh, that instead of a, a land, they received cities And God would designate those cities throughout all of Israel. He would spread them out all across Israel. And even that was for a purpose. And so we're not going to read the entire chapter, but I want to show you how the chapter breaks down so that we can make some observations as we walk through it. Uh, So here's kind of the the 30,000-foot view of the chapter. Verses 1 through 3, the Levites claim their their cities um, in faith according to God's word, what he had said, what he had promised to give them. Verses 4 through 8 give us the big picture, the breakdown of those cities and and where they're going to be, generally speaking. And then verses 9 through 40 show us the nitty-gritty details, where all of those cities are. They're named one by one. They're they're calculated and they're summed up for us um, with all of their details. And so what do we learn? Three truths about God's generosity and mercy. Three truths about his generosity and mercy. Number one, we see the basis for God's generosity. Look at verse um, Look at verse 1. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to, to dwell in among, uh, their pasture, and along with pasture lands for our livestock. So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. So observe the, the basis upon which they're making this claim. They're requesting this. Verse 2, the Lord commanded through Moses. Verse 3, by the command of the Lord. So God instructed Moses to give the Levites these cities that they could live in, this pasture land so they could raise their livestock. That's, again, back in Numbers 35. And the Levites hadn't, the Levites hadn't forgotten about those promises. They believed those promises. And so they approached Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua and the other leadership. They said, hey, we want what God has promised. We want it to be fulfilled as it has been for these other tribes. We've witnessed this before in the book of Joshua. People coming before Joshua and the other leadership of Israel and saying, hey, this is what God said. Let me remind you of God's word. This is what he promised us. You saw it with Caleb in chapter 14. You saw it with the the daughters of Zelophadad in in chapter 17. And now the Levites come and they do the very same thing. They they say, this is what God has promised. So based on his promise, based upon his word, we're going to ask for the generosity of God to be given us what he told us he would give us. Friends, is this not the basis upon which we make requests and pray unto God today? That, that God would grant and do exactly what he's already said he desires to do? I mean, I mean, think about that. Think about the kind of prayers that God delights in answering. The kind of prayers that he said he's already wanting to answer for us. God, would you sanctify me and make me more like Jesus today? Make me aware of my sin. Point out parts of my heart that I've not surrendered to you. That's a great prayer because he loves to answer that prayer. God, would would you give me boldness to stand for you today, no matter what comes into my life or who I get an opportunity to share with? Will you give me boldness today? That's a great prayer. He delights in answering it. God, would you strengthen my heart because my flesh is weak today and I'm doubting today? That's a great prayer. He delights in answering that. Friends, there's our confidence. Here's our confidence. In what he's already declared, he delights in granting What he's already declared, he delights in granting. So go to his word, know his word, and then pray his word back to him. He loves to answer that prayer. 
Number two, <clears throat> we see God's generosity and mercy in the parable that the Levites lived out. <clears throat> the Levites were living out a parable in front of the people of Israel and for us today. And so think about this. Since the Levites, they received no land inheritance, they only lived in cities that were designated for them among the other tribes, they really have a status as a sojourner. They're, they're really a stranger in their own land. They have no place uh, other than these cities. They don't have a, a land for them necessarily. And so Deuteronomy 18 verse 6 uses this word sojourner to describe the Levites. Even God's word describes them this way. In one sense, because they're sojourning, even in the promised land with no land but only cities to live in, they never develop roots. They never plant and develop roots, a place that's the Levite's land. And so they live in that way. They live as a parable for all Israelites and for us today, too, that there should be a certain rootlessness to every person's existence, especially for the people of God. We should be aware of this. This, this place is not our home. There's a, root, a good rootlessness uh, to our lives as we live before God. Listen to what David prayed in First, uh, First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 15. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Again, David in, in Psalms chapter 39, verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you and a settler just like my father's. So the, so the Levites are a reminder to us, they're here for us to, to see in the text, for Israel certainly to see and hear in their midst. They're a visual aid of our fleeting, rootless lives on this planet. We're not attached, and we shouldn't want to be. I mean, in, in, this, in, in this way, when we're reminded of that, we're given a reminder of God's generosity, that we don't want to be permanent residents of this planet. We don't want to be permanent residents of Franklin County. He's prepared a place for us. He is preparing a place for us that is so much greater than anything we could imagine or hope for. We don't want to, we don't want to plant roots that remain forever. And so the rootlessness of the Levites, it doesn't bring us despair, but it brings us to reality. It nurtures a humility that says there's a hope that our generous and merciful God has in his great mercy. He's defeated death and he welcomes us into his presence. Friends, that's the hope of the gospel, that if our faith and trust is in Christ, he's prepared a place for us so such that we wouldn't want to remain here. So when we lose a loved one that we know walked with the Lord, that, that knew the Lord, we have hope. They wouldn't want to come back even if they could. They're in the presence of Jesus. That's his generosity and his mercy. And we see it lived out in the, the parable of the Levites, a, a, a people who were strangers in their own land. Number three, we see the, the gener generosity and mercy of God and the function that the priests fulfilled among the people of God. So if you think about what the priests did and what God said in his word or the function of these Levitical priests, there's a generosity and mercy here that we could easily overlook. And so before leaving them, let's think about what they did. Let's think about their function. Why is it that they were scattered all over these cities throughout Israel and not just a piece of land like all the other tribes? Well, this, this passage doesn't explicitly state the answer to that, but their function is clear. John Calvin, back in the 16th century, said this, They served as a kind of guardian in every district to retain the people in the pure worship of God. This is the reason for stating so carefully how many cities they obtained from each tribe all over the land that they were everywhere to keep watch and to preserve the purity of sacred rites. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 33, you learn that these Levites were not only to supply priests for the altar, 
in the tabernacle, but they're also to supply teachers of the law, people that would stand and proclaim the word of God. And thus by, uh, thus by stationing them throughout all of Israel, by giving uh, them cities all over the promised land, every tribe had access to the word and to the law of God, to the worship of God. Oh, friends, don't, don't let the generosity and mercy of God pass over you in that, that, that God would, would provide such a means of grace to them. It's not random chance or coincidence that you were born into a nation where you had access to the gospel. Don't take that for granted. That, that, you were, that you were raised in a place where you had a church to come to and hear the word of God taught. Oh, friend, don't take that generosity for granted. Or that you could open a Bible, you could purchase a Bible and read it in your own language without fear or persecution or death. Friends, all of those are the generosity and mercy of God. The question is, are we stewarding those gifts of generosity and mercy well? Have we stewarded those gifts well? Have we utilized the gift, the mercy of God, and giving us access to the gospel? Have we stewarded that well? The New Testament church understood the urgency in this. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's Paul's heart for the Colossians. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2. It's an easy one to remember. It's 2 Timothy 2 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will, also, who will be able to teach others also. Listen to what Paul's saying to Timothy here. He, think about the generations, right? The successions of the gospel here that you have in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. You have you, talking to Timothy, you have heard from me uh, what you've heard from me, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. There's four generations of stewarding the generosity of God. What you've been given, the gospel that you've been given, take it and advance it. Are we doing that? Are, are we advancing the gospel and being good stewards of the generosity of God? There's a couple applications we can make here. First, we should thank God for his generosity in giving us pastors and elders that will care for our souls, guard the doctrine and the unity and the health of the church. And that may sound really self-serving, right? Me, the pastor, or one of your pastors telling you to be thankful for pastors. It sounds really self-serving. Uh, but you need to hear me say that I'm thankful for our pastors and elders that I submit to. I need to be shepherded as I help shepherd. We, that's a generosity and, and a mercy that God has given us that we shouldn't take for granted. That we have faithful men who love the Lord and love his word and love to shepherd and care for souls. And so I need to be shepherded. And I am faithfully and well, and I'm thankful for it. The second, though, I think point of application from this is that the New Testament calls us a kingdom of priests, the priesthood of the believer. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. So as the church, we should function in this way, too, that we're responsible for one another's sanctification. We're responsible for one another's holiness. Friends, it's a kindness, it's a mercy, and a, the generosity of God to provide us a community, a church, a family, where the gospel is proclaimed and lived out, Right? Where genuine community, where spiritual depth and love for the Lord is, is shared and, and provoked in one another. That's a kindness and a mercy of the Lord. There are places even within our, own, within our own country where you would have to travel miles and miles to find a Christian brother that you could do life with and share the gospel with and, and be discipled with. God's given us that. And shame on us if God's generosity is not extended to this community because we're being bad stewards of, uh, of, the, of the grace and mercy that he's given us. That as a kingdom of priests, we're just kind of hoarding it all to ourselves and enjoying his mercy and kindness. So that's the point number two. We serve a God of justice. We serve a God of mercy and generosity. Our third and final point. 
We serve a God of faithfulness. We serve a God of faithfulness. You've already heard our brother Ricky read these verses for us. But in them we see a testimony of God's faithfulness. I'm not overstating when I say this. So hear me carefully. I'm I'm not overstating this. These verses are the heart of the book of Joshua. They're the very core of, of the book of Joshua. Structurally, these verses draw a line across everything that has come before them and summarizes everything that we've seen. One commentary says this, that these verses are the jugular vein of the book of Joshua. So let's, let's read them again. I want you to hear them, and I want you to listen for how they've summarized everything we've said in the book of Joshua. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he'd sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all of their enemies into their hands, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord God had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's really good. So verse 43 summarizes chapters 13 through 21 where they're given and they settle into the land. uh, Verse uh, 44 summarizes chapters 1 through 12 where they battle their enemies and take possession of the land. And then verse 45 summarizes the whole book that, that not one thing failed. It all came to pass. And so what do we learn here? What do we learn in these last verses and how do we apply these last three verses? Two observations for us. One, these are praises unto God. It's adoration, it's worship, it's anthems of God's faithfulness that he has done and he has kept everything that he said he was going to do down to the very last promise. It's sort of like sledgehammer theology here, right? By repetition, the writer of Joshua is just kind of pummeling it into our brains that God's faithful. He's, he's reminding us again and again, verse 43, what he had sworn. Verse 44, according to all that he had sworn. Verse 45, the good promises that Yahweh had spoken. In every case, all three of those verses, God is doing exactly what he swore to do and not a word of it fell short. Everything came about. It all came to pass. These are not just theological statements. They're statements of worship, right? And our theology is best when it leads to worship, when it leads to doxology. Our doctrine dances. Our teachings should make us sing because it's the gospel that we're rehearsing. And that's what we're hearing right here, that God is faithful. God is good. God keeps his promises. It's worship unto God. But second... It's not just praise to God. They're also a reminder of a promise made to us. It's a reminder of a promise made to us. Beside expressing praise, these verses contain a promise. Look at verse 44. It makes it clear that God gave rest to the Israelites. He gave them rest. And it primarily looked like God having victory over their enemies. So these two are connected. That God gave Israel rest by triumphing over his and their enemies. It says that in verse 44, not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Israel's rest meant enemies' defeats. That's always the case. There is no rest or peace until opposition to God and his people is removed. We see this pattern in the New Testament as well as we think about the end of all things. And when Christ returns, 2 Thessalonians, you can jot this down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
And this may appear harsh. And it is harsh. It appears harsh because it is harsh. But it's the only way that lasting rest can be given to God's people. By the cutting off of God's enemies. And we so easily forget this, right? I mean, think about even the, the Lord's Prayer. How often we hear and pray, you know, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you pray that, that's, that's precisely what you're praying for. God, destroy your enemies. Give us a place of rest and peace that will be everlasting. And think about it. I mean, think, think about if it, if it doesn't mean that, right? Do we really think that, that, that the United Nations are going to come together and have a unanimous decision, a unanimous vote where all the nations immediately and gladly comply with some peace order that's going to, that's going to last no, if that, would, if that could happen, it already would have happened. So the only way, the only, the only way that rest and peace can actually happen is when Christ visibly conquers all of his and our enemies. And this is the promise of Joshua 21, that God gave Israel temporal peace when he defeated her enemies. He gave them rest when he defeated their enemies. And it's a foreshadowing. It didn't last. It didn't last for Israel. They, they ran back to sin and, and, and were led into slavery again. But this is a foreshadowing of Jesus' victory and our rest that will come in him. That will have no end. It will be perfect peace and perfect rest. When Jesus ultimately delivers us from the evil one, there will be no more death. There will be no more corruption. There will be no more night. True and final rest in him. When his enemies are conquered, what a day that will be. Will you be there on that day? Let's pray together.